0: in the English language, words are defined by titles. There are adverbs, their verbs, their pronouns, and their nouns. I'm going to read a noun for you right now. The occurrence and development of events by chance in a happy or beneficial way. That is the definition of serendipity. Well, on this Thursday, as the market's done this incredible reversal to the downside, we are fortunate to... And we are the benefactors of having the great Jim Chanos from Kinecos joining us here on the tape. Jim, how are you? Did you like that introduction?
1: I just wish I had the classical Jesuit education that I know you are blessed with to be able
0: to respond to such wordsmithing. But I'm really happy to be here with you guys. Let's just get right into it because today's market, I ever say once in a while, you have to put one of those tabs on the book to go back and look at it. I am convinced that in six months from now, we will come back and look at April 21st as some pivotal day for the market. Thoughts, Jim?
1: I'll leave that to you guys. But I mean, this market now since the fall has been acting eerily like the market of two thousand and one. and Rallies are being sold, stocks break to new lows, the indices kind of hide it. The S&P is still within a stone's throw of its highs, but there is a lot of carnage that's happening underneath the surface. There's a lot of money managers who are holding on portfolios that are just taking on water almost every week. And yet, hopefully we'll get into some of this, some valuations are still up in the stratosphere for some of the risks that some of these companies are about to incur. It's kind of a crazy time.
2: Jim, it's nice to see you smiling because we get you on a really good day for some and not great for others. You're one of the short sellers that have made it through many cycles. We hear about funds that are shutting down all the time. One recent, we just saw another one go by the wayside, potentially. You've been able to survive that. And I believe your setup is, if I'm not mistaken, you balance out your short positions with market and S&P, whether it's calls or whether you're buying the actual ETF, whatever. That's actually been a perfect setup over the last several months because from an individual stock picker's perspective, in the short side and on the long side, maybe for that, but certainly on the short side, the way that you're set up, you just said the S&P's not down that much. It's not like it's down a ton from its eyes. So it seems like a pretty good setup for you. So have you seen in the last several years, it's not a coincidence that the Fed no longer has our back and this is potentially happening. It is truly a stock picker's market and fundamentals are starting to matter. I just want to get your thoughts on that first.
1: So one of the things I've been telling clients and anybody else I pass on the street, I guess, is that I think like a lot of things that mark turning points as it relates to the fundamental short side, we all took the wrong lesson of 2021. And the meme stocks, which basically destroyed a whole raft of bears in January and then again in May, June of last year, basically had people swear off fundamental short selling and reduce positions or do it through ETFs or futures and simply say, I'm just not going to short stocks with high short interest or where there's any kind of controversy involved. And we kept pointing out that, in fact, those are exactly the names that have created the highest amount of alpha on the short side over the last 40 years. And as you say, we do have a bit of a history on this. And there are periods where it just doesn't work. And 2020 and early 2021 was one of those periods. But in our way of thinking, that marked the end of the move, not the beginning of the move. People just said, that's it, I'm never going to short stocks again, doesn't work. Yeah, I know this fraud is trading at 20, 30 revenues, but so what, nobody cares. And that was exactly the time you should have been looking for fundamental shorts. And I think that what's happened since then, and really since the fall, has been that those are exactly the stories. And yet the playbook still is. Every time the market stops going down, those stocks rally pretty hard. People cover shorts. And here we go again. That's what happened, by the way, after the 10-year bull market of the 90s. When stocks started going down in March of 2000, nobody believed it. They kept rushing in to buy the same names, the Cisco's, the Amazon's, the AOL's, the Celex, what have you, the Enron's. And they would break to new lows, even if the indices didn't. And we've been seeing that since October of last year.
3: You started out by saying eerily similar to 2000, and no one believed it. And one of the things that's really similar to 2000 also right now, we're on the precipice of the Fed raising interest rates 50 basis points for the first time since May of 2000. And at the time, the psychology was very similar. Investors were like, okay, we got to cool things down a little bit, and this will be okay. The broader market, the economy will be able to deal with this. But Jim, when you think about what's going on right now, there's so many similarities, but it really feels like The worst part of that bear market, and you and I have talked about this before, was really the back half of 01 and most of 02. And it feels like we are still in that 2000 period despite the carnage of so many areas, so many pockets of risk. You mentioned SPACs, recent IPOs, shitcoins. The list goes on and on and on. And Guy and Danny and I have been sitting here on this podcast or some of the other content that we do on CNBC and saying we really feel like people are whistling by the graveyard here because we're on the precipice of something. So, talk to us about the rate environment, the inflationary environment, which is actually very different. There's still the valuations that you just mentioned, the geopolitical uncertainty that we have, this bipolar world that comes after the pandemic and then this war in Eastern Europe. Talk to us about the macro environment here. And what are we on the precipice of?
1: I think it's the dot-com era, but it's on steroids. And by steroids, I mean there's a couple of other aspects here that we didn't have in the dot-com era that make this far worse. Not only are the valuations 10x a questionable business models that they were, the typical dot-com company that was a disaster in 2002 was a 2 or 3 or $4 billion market cap company that went to zero. Today, those things are still 20 $30, 40000000000 in market cap number one number two everything is much more leveraged than it was in 1999 and 2000 we hadn't taken on the debt levels either globally or domestically like we have today and some of that got rung out in 07 and 08 but a lot of it's right back to where we are and keep in mind we have a whole raft of industries and sectors and valuations that are basically based on two percent long-term rates and zero percent short-term rates and i can't tell you how many mundane companies that are no growth or REITs or what have you that are trading in effect at 25 times EBITDA or 3% cap rates or whatever on the assumption that rates will just never really go up even if they go up they'll come right back down because the fed will blink and so this is a real witch's brew because you have towering valuations in the tech sector you have leverage throughout the economy And then you have just a whole subset of asset prices that are tied to really, really low cap rates, i.e. high multiples, because rates are so low. And the one thing that nobody nobody is prepared for is a bear market because interest rates go a lot higher. That's just not in anyone's cards. No one is hedged for that, and we'll see. But the amount of right-tail risk or left-tail risk, depending on your your viewpoint, is pretty robust right now. And yet the SP is 4% off all time highs, 5% off all time highs, whatever the number is. We're still up in the stratosphere. Let's not forget the market was up a lot in 2019, 2020, and 2021.
2: You and I are both market historians in terms of going back and looking, and so many cycles are similar. I agree with you. We've talked about it on the show that it does feel the most similar to 2000. But go back to whether it's tulips or railroads or subprime. I remember it, the one thing that stood out to me in 2000 and i'm going to bring this to our favorite industry in a second was all the fiber optic companies which i'm sure you were looking at at the time whether it was lucent Nortel, whatever it would be
1: global crossing
2: global crossing the good ones just keep coming you could actually add up the fiber optic it would go around the earth like a hundred times to equate to the total adjustable market that they were claiming for it actually to work for that industry to make sense on a valuation perspective it's at those times when people actually have to start to take a look at what a company does, what its TAM is, what its earnings potential is, and you realize the pie is not even big enough to support all these companies. I bring that up because we're going through a period of time right now. And we're going to go through some of the greatest hits here, the current greatest hits, right? Carvana's of the world, the Upstarts, the Affirms, and some of our other favorite names out there. But I've always said, and this happened in 2000, stocks went down 60%, 70% from their highs. They became better shorts down 60 to 70% when it became clear there was nothing they could stand upon where it became clear they were going for funding sources. I'd love to get your thoughts on that because that to me, you haven't missed this yet. If you're out there and you're looking for things, I'm not saying everyone should go look for shorts and we tend to be tagged as bears all the time. But I want to get your thoughts on that.
1: What we love on the short side fundamentally is businesses and industries that are completely misperceived. And the reason for that is when the glass goes from basically half full to half empty, it's the same business, the valuations are step functions. So if you look at companies that claim that they're a high-tech company, but really they're a subprime lender in drag, there's a long, long way down from 10 times revenues to one times tangible book. And even growth companies can fit that mode. I made the point this week on Twitter, keep in mind that Netflix since November went from 10 times revenues to 15 times EBITDA, which is probably a rational multiple for a media company. And that took the stock down 70%. And so when you get that variant perception that this company is not growing to the sky and it has some of the same risks and issues on size of market and competitive forces and what have you, and then you get to that tipping point where they tell you that, they say, we don't really kind of know what's going on in our business and we didn't really expect Business turned down and things are a lot more competitive than we thought. So maybe you should revise your models. You get a meta, you get a Netflix. I joked with some of you guys, I think a few months ago, not normal when these highly followed stocks are having down 40% moves on earnings. That's telling you something very at risk is not being properly priced. And so there's just a lot of those situations out there today where people are still hockey sticking. What have been tremendous growth rates in some industries for the last five years, but don't understand that competitive pressures are what they are, returns on capital are what they are, law of large numbers does exist, and that when these things stumble, you don't have a lot of safety net below you if you're buying them at 10 and 15 and 20 times revenues.
0: We're going to get granular in terms of some names and stuff in a minute, but this is more of a meta question. That's a Dan Nathan word, by the way, Jim. I don't even know what it means, but how frustrating is it for you to do the thoughtful work that you do? Danny Moses, the same type of work, but yet watch the market seemingly go up every single day. Names that you know in your heart through the work you've done that have no business being at the valuations there are, but they continue to grind higher. Then on days like today, a couple times a year, you get rewarded. But in the meantime, you have to listen to all the assholes say, oh, Jim's always this, always that. He's he's early. That's got a grade on you. I know it does for me having to be on TV every night, which I love doing, by the way.
1: I can't tell. But (laughs) (laughs) I used to think the short side was the same as the long side. Same skill set. You got to value companies. You got to understand risk. But I began over time to realize, of course, that that isn't true because of aspects of behavioral finance. And there's lots of asymmetries on the short side. And one of the biggest and one of the reasons people don't like it is that security prices, for the most part, go up over time and go up on various rates of incline. But when they go down, they go down pretty quickly, steps up, elevator down. And so you'll sit there and bat your head against the wall in a name you know, is a joke. One of the great ones for us a few years ago was Wirecard, which is the Enron of Europe. And the FT, for God's sakes, was literally publishing internal emails proving the fraud, and the stock was still going up. So you want to grab the efficient market hypothesis by the throat and say, what the heck's wrong with you? But yet, ultimately, it did pan out the way that anybody could read an email thought it would. But it's one of the reasons why not a lot of people do this. It's survivorship bias, and there aren't many left of us. But, you know, part of it is just the frustration of weeks and months on end where you think you're losing your mind and then a couple of nice days every year. And that's kind of it.
3: But here's the thing, Jim, you've had a really nice year. We've had the benefit of you coming on. I think this is the third time in the last year on on the tape and all of us speak to you. You go on CNBC, you speak at a lot of events. You've gotten dozens and dozens of things really right over the last couple of years. The one thing that sticks out, and I think it's the one that I know Danny and Guy, and Guy's been actually very constructive on the story. we got to talk about this Tesla. So the Tesla is at a trillion dollar market cap. It's at a thousand bucks. I think you would probably look at the business and you see some things there that are probably pretty attractive. If you could take Elon Musk and you could take some things out of it. And I know that you've been tracking this story very well. Here's the one thing, and I said this on our show last night, is the numbers are hitting the tape and the stock's up four and a half percent or something like that. And Phil Lebeau was like, the stock is is surging in the aftermarket. It was up 4.5%, and the stock was down 5% of the day, and they just literally put up the best quarter. Guy said it on the show at the time. This is the quarter that bulls had been waiting for for two years. And the only thing that I had to say about this story is that it didn't start working until about two years ago until we got into this crazy dislocated market, and this is not even a meme stock. It is a cult. He is a cult leader. There might be a lot of great things going on there, but In my 25-year career, and I know you've been doing this just a few years longer than me, I've never seen a cult story like this that doesn't unwind and unwind badly.
1: Getting back to the 1999-2000 analogy, when you get epic bull markets, you get epic totemic stocks that people basically put their hopes and dreams on. And often they have highly promotional leaders who let people do that. And Tesla fits that bill. The name I kind of gravitate to that was similar in 2000, although not as extreme, was Cisco. Cisco was led by John Chambers, the guy who always made his numbers, spoke eloquently about the future of the internet. And by the time the stock went parabolic in the first quarter of 2000, Cisco made routers. They still do. But people were talking about them getting into fiber optics, making their own chips, doing all the hardware-related stuff that people got excited about back in 2000. And all he did was basically continue to do well making routers. And the stock dropped 80 or 90%. I think it's still not back to where it was in 2000. But for that brief couple-year period from 97 to 98 to 2000, when it went parabolic, people basically said Cisco could do anything it set its heart and mind to. Tesla was flat for five years from 14 to 19. And then when retail entered this market in a big way in the fourth quarter of 19, when commission rates dropped and the public finally discovered the stock market after 10 years of going up, the stock exploded. And it coincided with them hitting their numbers, delivering lots of cars, EVs being more widely accepted. And as you say, they reported a great quarter last night, 30% gross margins in the auto industry. But and it comes with a big but, the stock is now valued at 1.1 trillion dollars. It is valued at 20 times revenues. It is valued at 100 times the adjusted EPS, and I think 100 times the gap number for next year. It is in the car business, despite anything Elon will tell you about robotics and robo taxis and. Neuralinks and this and that, they make automobiles. They are putting up plants to build more automobiles. And there will come a day, it was not last night, where Tesla will say, we think that the 50% unit growth rate that you're all working on should be brought back down to 20 to 30%. This is a big market and lots of people are in it. That's the day you're not going to want to be in Tesla because it's going to be down 40 or 50 or 60%. It's going to have that step function that Netflix and Meta and PayPal and others have had when they told you we're not growing at 40, 50% anymore. We're growing at 10 or
2: 20. 100% agree with that. And it took 21 minutes to get to Tesla. That's, that's pretty good. And it wasn't even me that actually brought it up. But, Jim, what's really amazing to me, and this, I think, sums it up, is that when stocks don't trade on fundamentals, per se, and it's just a belief, as Dan mentions, like a cult. they trade incrementally, meaning if the stock had closed last night at 600 yeah, it would have opened at 660. It happened to close it wherever, 990, so it opened at 1080. My point is that it doesn't get revalued. No one's valuing it the right way. Like, they're just saying we love Elon. But here's the amazing thing to me. There are CEOs that have been fired for less. This whole ESG game that they claim, the way that they treat their employees, it all gets ignored. It all gets ignored. And another thing happened last night, which hasn't really gotten a lot of press, is he's earned himself another $23 billion in compensation, in option. And there's no outrage on it because— He's a genius because it's a trillion-dollar company. He deserves it. He's changing the world. And then I see today that the Boring Company is raising money at over a $6 billion valuation. Now, they don't really have any revenues yet. I get it. But it's just amazing to me the brand, his brand itself. And to your point, it's hard to value that. What is that worth? But the free passes continue to amaze me. That And you're right. It will. We'll have that day where it's 50 or 60%. And yes, it's embarrassing. I'll take myself. Forget about you for a second to be out on the short call for, for years on this name because we want to believe, you and I and everyone that's a true market player, that rules matter, that capitalism matters, that their valuation matters at some point, and it will. And the last thing, because I don't know that this is a question I'm just venting to you with you, is that where in the hell is the government? I, I mean, I'm not going to rely on the government for anything, for a short thesis. Let me give you yet another
1: analogy to make you feel a little bit better, Danny. Our biggest disaster prior to Tesla was a little company called America Online in the late 90s. And America Online was an accounting fraud. Everybody forgets that. The accounting fraud came out later. But they were capitalizing marketing expenses, were huge negative free cash flow. All those coasters that I know Guy was using to put his illegal beverages at Georgetown on when he was a young guy, they capitalized those costs. And, of course, it was a TAM story, and it was the Internet. There was no bigger story back then than getting people onto the Internet, and AOL was the play. And it went up 10x on us, and we kept covering it, and kept going up, and we kept covering it. Finally, I threw in the towel in late 98 on the name, and it went up some more. They merged with Time Warner. They got very smart. They figured we better buy a real company with this equity. And of course, it didn't matter because the whole thing was so overpriced combined that when growth in the internet slowed, the whole thing came tumbling down. And then the accounting stuff started coming out and the charges for past earnings and and all kinds of nefarious things, the barter deals that they were doing. And all of that that the bears had been talking about in the late 90s came out in 0203. And the whole thing was basically a smoking pile of ruins. But the fact of the matter was it wasn't until the market took it down that the visionaries at AOL and Time Warner were seen to be what they really were. And that's one of the things I teach in my history of financial fraud case is that, again, and I've said it before, the greatest defense attorney and the harshest prosecutor of any company is its stock price. If everything is going up, everything is fine. We're not going to bother you. We don't want to hurt investors we don't want to be seen as squashing, but God forbid things go down, it's going to be a hunt for bad guys. And boy, 0203 was really that after the dot-com crash. It's not a coincidence that all those frauds were prosecuted the way they were, like Enron and WorldCom and Tyco and others. If the stocks had kept going up, but the frauds were exposed, I don't know those guys would have gone to jail.
0: Before we going back to playing the greatest hits, we have Carvana, by the way. We're going to play that song in a few minutes. But just bear with me for a second, because I've said this. I know Danny believes it. The Federal Reserve is put themselves in a position that I don't think they can extract themselves from, and the bond market is broken. I've said that on the show. I'm saying it right now. When bond yields move the way of a $150 million stage three biotech firm, something is amiss. Any thoughts on that? Because... Personally, Jim, I think it's just a matter of time before that bond volatility makes its way into the equity world.
1: I saw right before this podcast that the 10 year break evens are north of 3% now. And I know that's got to terrify the Fed because that is a number they do look at long term inflationary expectations. And so we've quietly gone from 2% to 3% on that. And I'm just mystified that the bond market is enacting even worse, not in terms of day to day volatility, but if you're telling me that we expect real GDP to be up two or three percent and long-term inflationary expectations are now three percent, what the hell is the long bond and what is the tenure doing at 290? It should be at four or five six hundred basis points. And so the rate shock that I think could happen still hasn't happened, but it is more recently happening. In April of 2021, I mean, the move in rates we've had just in the last month has been stunning and it's kind of happening three, four five basis points a day. And so if the Fed really wants to get serious, they're going to have to get long rates up, not just short rates. And we'll see what happens. But it gets back to my earlier part in the show that there is just a whole slew of stocks and industries and securities that are not priced for four and five and six percent treasury
2: rates, just not. What a perfect segue, Guy, and a good setup. See that? I actually pay attention, Danny Moses. Things that are impacted by higher rates and higher credit spreads. It's amazing, Jim, that the Fed's only raised 25 basis points. I know that the Fed fund futures are now pricing in a 3% Fed funds, by the way, by the end of the year, which I think we all agree is not priced into the equity market. But what's amazing is that the other thing about the Fed not buying assets any longer— and potentially a basically an unwinder of assets is being underappreciated by the market as well. We've seen mortgage spreads blow out twice the level that yields have gone up in government treasuries. We've seen auto loans, et cetera. So let's go into the auto loan sector. So we were watching, and you were watching, and I've seen your work on Twitter and so forth, and I've had similar thought process that as credit spreads start to widen, it will unmask what these platforms that claim they are that have, quote, no credit risk, and use these rent a banks. And the data is there for anyone to see. And it's willful ignorance of people not wanting to look at this data, the credit data, securitization data. So we'll go into a few of these, but you got the buy now, pay later as we'll get into a moment. But let's focus on Carvana because that's not even a credit spread story. There's a lot of other things going on there. So we'll go through the greatest hits here. What is the autopsy report today on the company after what you saw come out yesterday?
1: So we've been short Carvana, not for a long period of time. One of the few that I missed on the way up, thankfully. But this is a name that we got short more recently at year end into the new year. And really, it's because exactly that. We began to see consumer credit tighten up. We began to see rising delinquencies. You and I talked about it earlier in the year. You saw the first green shoots of problems in that area arising at the end of last year. But on top of that, Carvana was even simpler. It was a good example of of what one of my analysts says, if not now, when? Meaning that if you didn't make money when all of the stars aligned for your particular business model, so think about Peloton in the pandemic, think about DoorDash in the pandemic and think about used car vendors with digital models when everybody was getting stimulus checks and used car prices were going up and you had this model all to yourself, you had this road all to yourself, You couldn't make money the model just didn't make money in the greatest of all circumstances what is going to happen when things get tougher from a systematic point of view interest rates go up credit gets tighter used car prices rising don't raise the value of your inventory for just sitting there that's i think what carvana was facing at year end and now that used car prices have stalled out or god forbid gone down and we see that that there are some problems the first quarter that they reported last night was an utter disaster and not only was it utter disaster it gets back to that other thing it's now a growth stock that stopped growing it's had flat units for four quarters and so if you're not growing anymore and you're not making any money well the valuation cliff from being a unprofitable tam 20 times revenue story or whatever, 10 times gross profit story to a used car dealer with an online presence that loses money, that's a big step down. And then on top of that, you had their balance sheet. They were basically running out of money at the end of the first quarter. They'd announced this huge Odessa deal for $2.2 billion plus another billion of investments into it. And they didn't have it and they had jp morgan as late as february the 25th they found an 8k outlining their deal with jp morgan to finance the deal and then last night they say no banks we're gonna have to do a junk deal and a pick preferred What was the last pick preferred you heard about in 1989 and an equity deal in order to finance all this stuff and finance our losses the stock traded down and then shockingly traded up on the evening there's nothing good happening here they're probably going to burn better part of 700 million to a billion in the second quarter. So the equity they're raising right now is going to be gone by the end of June or July. And they're going to be right back into the same liquidity problem by the end of the summer,
0: early fall. I'm stunned the stock still has an eight in front of it. So Jim, not that I'm looking to play stock market, but as we sit here and Danny was talking about the levels of Carvana last summer when this stock was, I think it traded up to $375 in August of last year. Danny started talking about it in earnest as we got into the fall about it. Just there's no way the stock should be here. Now, to your point, it's an $83 stock. People will say, well, they've taken enough out of it already. You just said that you're surprised there's an eight handle. And Danny said a few minutes ago that the best short opportunities are when stocks are down 60 and 70%. So as we sit here, it seems like there's still a lot of room left to the downside. Well, first of all, there's going to be $10 billion of debt
1: and preferred ahead of you when we get through this summer. And that was not the case a year ago, by the way. A lot of this net debt has just all come on the company in the last year. That's number one. So you have a crushing amount of securities ahead of you in the capital structure. But Danny is right in that when the best bull case, and I really do talk to people that like Carvana, the overwhelming bull case I get at $90, $100 was it's down from $350. I said, if you didn't look at a stock chart and you had to value this company and didn't know where it was, where it came from and said, "Okay, what's it worth? What would a rational buyer pay for this? What's the risk? Whatever. And then I told you, oh, by the way, it traded at $350 last summer. You would think I came off the planet Mars. Anchoring ourselves to past prices as a reason to be bullish is a really expensive proposition. And it doesn't tell you where the stock is going just as a stock that's up. 300% might not be a good short if it's going to go up 10x. You just have to value the company and base it on risks and discount rates and all the other things you put into valuation. But just because it was somewhere else is not a good reason either long or short to buy or sell something.
2: I got one other question on some of these names. We can broaden it back out again. But just on the buy now, pay later sector, we had Vincent and Porter on here a couple weeks ago. And Vinny's mantra has always been, you cannot commoditize lending. And if you're growing your loan book faster than GDP, you will have a problem. And so this iteration of this group that's going to be the quickest last in first out of the cycle, just quick two-minute thought on that sector, because we're seeing massive credit deterioration within 90 days of when these loans are being originated.
1: One of the textbooks and one of the models I teach in my fraud class is Bill Black's control fraud model. And he wrote a great book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. He came out of the SNL crisis as an examiner and a big critic of rapidly growing financial institutions. That overwhelmingly, you can report record profits by aggressively making loans that other people won't make during the up part of a cycle, but that you are almost always guaranteed to suffer catastrophic losses in the downside of the cycle if you are among the most aggressive lenders in the up part of the cycle. It's as old as it is credit and lending and human nature. And every single cycle, Danny, you know better than most, particularly since the advent of the internet, has had a group of companies that said, we have this figured out. We know how to make loans to bad credits that will pay off and pay off with higher interest rates, with de minimis credit losses. And then the credit cycle turns down. And it turns out No, our models really weren't any better than the FICO scores, and arguably they were worse. And we had it this time with the buy now, pay later, and the lending platform guys, and I think investors are going to find the same lesson that investors have learned now for cycle after cycle, that there's no free lunch in this stuff, and there's typically no magic bullet for low credit rated borrowers or underbanked borrowers.
2: So as Steve Eisman gave a speech in 2006 at a mortgage conference, it was a fixed income conference and everyone was still giddy. And he turned to his left and he turns to his right and he says, do you guys have any Prozac because you're going to need this when you're done. So I want to shift this back because we get tagged all the time and short sellers like us, we love to find good longs. I know you don't spend a crazy amount of time on it, but let's broaden it out and maybe help people a little bit that are out there. There are names out there that have pricing power, that are good inflation plays. You have any long recommendations in your portfolio or any thoughts there on some names?
1: I am long the S&P 500 and occasionally the NASDAQ. That's it. My time is so much better spent looking for the questionable companies. I am happy to own the S&P at 20 plus times earnings and have the bias in the indices than be short our little world of madness. For us, that's a better way to go about our business. It's been pretty profitable over the long run, and I think it will be.
3: All right, but, Jim, let's talk about that. So you own the S&P versus these things that you're short. It's a valuation game on the short side. It's a fundamental thing that you're digging into, and you know that the SPY is going to act the way it's going to act, except here's what we got to get to. So we're seeing all of this just bludgeoning in so many parts of the market. And one of the things that's really interesting to me today, why I think Guy said this is a really important day that should be bookmarked. We're seeing correlations now come back to one a little bit. We're seeing the VIX very low. I'm looking at like a free port down 10% on the day. Alcoa down 16% on the day. Some of these stocks were the beneficiaries of people moving out of SaaS and cyber and social names and stuff like that. When I look at your S&P 500, and I'm saying it's your long, right? It's your head share. I'm looking at Apple at 7%. I'm looking at Microsoft near 6%. I'm at Amazon at three and a half percent. So here's the deal. There are disasters lurking in these top five names that make up 25% of the index, and they make up 50% of the NASDAQ 100.
1: Let me jump ahead of you and tell you something really scary. I think at one point today when Tesla was at almost 1100, when Guy was buying it this morning, <laughs> our put position shrunk, which is the way it's supposed to happen. Our effective delta was such that it was below 3%. That meant to our horror, we realized we were net long Tesla.
3: We're 10 minutes in the close on Thursday as we're taping here. The S&P is down nearly 1.5%. The NASDAQ's down 2%, down 16% in the year. Do you need to take a break? Is there anything you need to do right now into the close?
1: I think I, I need to make some hedging trades,
3: guys. Okay, right, fair enough. We just wanted to give you that opportunity here. We all love that. I think that commercial came out at the exact top of the market. But I guess my point is as we go into next week's earnings, okay, we're going to have the MAGA complex, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, and Facebook, you. You know the names, you love them. But I actually think there's going to be a disaster or two as it relates to the Ford guidance, at least. And I think that's the thing that changes the tune for the broad market here. And I just want to make this point. You talked about this before. Facebook is down 50% from its highs on September 1st. It's lost a half a trillion dollars in market cap. NVIDIA has lost 400 billion. It was nearing 1 trillion at its highs just in November. And it seems that the crowding in Microsoft, Apple and Google, You're going to tell me, it reminds you of Cisco, Lucent and the stuff that went on in Microsoft in 2000. Just give us the playbook into next week.
1: Getting back to our analog of the dot-com era, what made that first sell-off, and the first sell-off was pretty vicious. Stocks went down 40%, 50% in March, April, May of 2000, was the fact that a lot of companies actually began warning in the spring of 2000 that some of the crazy growth rates that people had been extrapolating were not gonna happen. And there was a very, the Texas Instruments came out and talked about some weakness. And then you had people saying that the internet traffic growth wasn't doubling every quarter, as people said, it was doubling every year. And so there was all kinds of stuff that blew the TAM arguments out of the water in the summer of 2000. We're gonna be watching that. We now know streaming doesn't grow forever. We know that payments, there are limits per PayPal and others in the payment structure. If one of the chip companies says something, that's going to be worth knowing. Taiwan Semi reported a week or so ago and said pretty much in line. But can you imagine if NVIDIA says something or AMD says something? I would just look at a lot of other bellwethers and say, okay, how is the market reacting to this? Tesla was certainly one last night. They came through so far in flying colors. We'll see how stocks react to them. And whether expectations are still elevated for the rest of 2022, 2023. Stocks are not cheap. Despite some weakness, the SP, I think, is still north of 20 times earnings or close to it.
2: I actually think the dollar here is a big issue. It's over triple digits now, the DXY, Dixie, as we sit here, I think it's over 100. That has an issue, obviously, going forward. It's good for some companies. It's bad for a lot of companies. And I think when you start to see the stuff that we saw like in nickel, which I know you don't trade those type of commodities and so forth, but we were having massive blowups already in certain commodities, closing down the LME for days at a time, taking trades off the tape. I start to think about what the dollar, how much leverage is out there or more of the swaps and over-the-counter products that are tied to the dollar and all these things. And I can only think that we could have a catastrophe potentially on our hands and more blowups. We really haven't seen Institutional blow ups. I think we both agree the banks aren't going to be the ones that get destroyed this time. I think they're much healthier than they were. But what do you watch in terms of the macro of those type things?
1: Well, I mean, we are still bears on a certain country in Asia that is kind of a poster child for lots of debt and bad accounting. So keep your eye on the Chinese property market if you want to see the impact on
2: global commodities. It's- so you mean if they ever allow it to trade again? Or if, if keep it, because I've been keeping my eye on Evergrande. It's amazing. What a great performing stock that's been for the last six weeks, right? It's incredible.
1: Yeah. So the Chinese model hasn't changed. It's still dependent on investment and real estate. And despite the problems there, and it's kind of taken off the front pages because our foreign bandwidth is focused on the Ukraine and other things. But China has the same problem they've always had. Yet they are still a massive importer of industrial commodities and all kinds of things, iron ore, copper, all the good stuff. The reason that Caterpillar is still trading at 220. We keep an eye on that, obviously, in the raft of things that can't go on forever, won't go on forever. But they've managed to keep the balls up in the air for the time being. That's one systemic area. And I don't think it's a systemic credit area because the Chinese banks are pretty insular. It is systemic when it relates to industrial commodities. And that's one area that I would keep an eye on. And then I think just all the hidden leverage, one area we've been negative on, and so far nobody's cared, the stocks haven't gone up, but they haven't gone down, is commercial real estate. Talk about an area that is wholly dependent on 2% and 3% interest rates. We looked at S.L. Green last night. S.L. Green's trading at an implied cap rate of between 4 and 5% for New York City office buildings. I don't necessarily want to own a New York office building at a 4% cap rate with treasuries at 3%. And so, those kinds of things out there are everywhere. And I just keep wondering if we do get a move in rates to 4 or 5 or 6%, there's going to be bombs going off in areas that we have just no idea because of how tied a lot of business models are to very low funding costs.
2: Many of those companies you just mentioned also have a lot of debt, and it gets ignored when rates are flat and not moving. And I was looking last year, $1.8 trillion worth of junk bonds were issued, right? That was like a record. And we're Libor Plus we are going to switch to SOFR. That's a whole other podcast we've talked about. That's going to be bad. I want to ask you one last thing and when you and I had dinner several months ago, I asked you this and I know you haven't spent time on it, but given your openness with your market historian, I beg you to just your next flight, spend some time on gold. And I say that not because I want you to go out there and say that you're investing in gold. It is such a not a proxy but a product of historic markets, right? It's been around forever and the way that it's viewed as a hedge or ways to inflation, deflation, whatever it may be. It acts great to me. And I know that on the days on the margin, when the dollar's up, gold goes down, I get it. And I can understand why. If I could ask one thing of you, 20 minutes, just want you to put your brain into gold and look at it and give me your thoughts on it. Is that fair? Can we do that? Danny, I would
1: have liquidate all my crypto holdings
2: to do that. Yeah. I can't believe we've got an hour and haven't even discussed that. Speaking of inflation and hedges, I'm done with this. Bitcoin's an inflation hedge. I mean, it's been around for a couple of years and all of a sudden people think it's a store of value. And guess what? It's not getting destroyed, but it's not working. I mean, so on the margin, I think it is retail heavy. That's a whole nother podcast. It's
0: correlating to NASDAQ these days. Well, Jim, we started this a segment saying it was serendipity that you're with us. And it truly was serendipitous that you joined us today on the tape. Always. A pleasure to have you. Guaranteed,
2: you will be coming back on the tape. The great Jim Chanos. Jim, you got two minutes to close out all those shorts before we have a big rally tomorrow. So be very careful out there.
0: I'm going to go run and do my hedging trades, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. When we come back, CEO and co-founder of iConnections, Ron Biscardi. Ron Biscardi is the
3: CEO and co-founder of iConnections, an online community for alternative investment professionals focused on philanthropy. During his time in the business, Ron has closed over 20 seed deals and deployed more than $600 million in capital. Prior to iConnections, Ron was
0: the CEO and co-founder of Context Capital Partners for nearly 15 years. You know, Dan, every once in a while, you meet somebody that you instantly know you're going to be fast friends and hopefully lifelong friends with. And Ron Biscardi was one of those people for me. And that took place, I want to say, Ron, seven or eight years ago. So it's been wonderful getting to know you. I'm proud to call you my friend. And we are thrilled, both Dan and I in Risk Reversal Media, that iConnections is going to be our second presenting sponsor. Of on the tape. So welcome, Ron Biscardi. Welcome. <laughs>
4: Thank you, Guy.
0: It's great to be uh, back together. It is great to be back together, for sure. And you go through your history, and hopefully our listeners will take a look at your LinkedIn page. You are not a serial entrepreneur, but you're a successful serial entrepreneur. And I mention that because a lot of people try things. Very few people are successful. So talk to us about iConnection, the genesis, the vision, What's going on? What gets you jazzed?
4: iConnections was really born out of the pandemic. For people that don't know how the inner workings of, I'll call it the private fund universe works, they don't realize that the hedge funds, venture, private equity, real estate, all these private funds that are available only to accredited investors, they all live on face-to-face meetings. They can't advertise like every other product in our economy. They have to rely on introductions, which are primarily done face-to-face. So when the pandemic hit, all of that activity that took place over breakfast, lunches, dinners, events, cocktails, you name it, it all ground to a halt. And right as the pandemic started, I had left my prior firm and really wasn't sure what I was going to do next. But when the pandemic hit, it just became clear very fast that it wasn't going to end anytime soon and that the industry desperately needed a solution to this problem. All of these funds, especially the small to mid-sized funds that just aren't on all the radar screens yet, people don't really know them. If they can't get together with the allocator community, they're dead in the water as far as their expansion plans go. So we created iConnections to solve that problem in the pandemic initially. And we did it by way initially of a charity event called Funds for Food. So- My partner, Chris Altamere, and I, Chris is our CTO and the genius behind the tech platform. We went to an initial group of allocators and we said, if we do an event where fund managers come in and get to meet with you, will you pledge meetings for that event? And then we'll charge the fund managers to attend and we'll give 100% of what they pay to food banks around the world. And the allocator community just loved this idea and embraced it. We had over 4,000 meetings pledged. We completed close to 4,000 meetings in the event, raised just under $2 million for food insecurity, gave it to nine food banks around the world. It was honestly one of the things I'm most proud of in my career. And it also just an amazing way to start a new business with a charity event like that. And then From that event, we said, well, we clearly have something. This thing took off like wildfire. From there, we morphed what we did in that event and turned it into a subscription business with software that supports events throughout our industry, as well as a handful of our own events.
0: You know, it's interesting, and we're going to talk about what you're doing with Ukraine a little while, but I want to drill down quickly about philanthropy, because I think people don't really understand the importance and what it does not only obviously for the charities, but
4: what does for the culture of your firm? Can you speak to that, Ron? Yeah, absolutely. Our vision for the company is to help funds and allocators who are trying to change and advance the world. And that's really across the board in every way. If you think about our industry, so much of the capital that comes into private funds, it comes from endowments and foundations that are specifically set up for nothing but philanthropic reasons. So my perspective on the industry is that while Wall Street obviously gets knocked a lot in the media, my perspective being on the inside is that we have a ton of people in this business that are completely focused and have dedicated their lives to being part of organizations that are trying to advance philanthropic issues and initiatives. So it wasn't That's surprising to me that when we came out with this idea, they looked to us to make sure we were credible and we could execute. But once they got over that hurdle, it was just like, we were signing up 30, 35 allocators a day. And these were major, major names. I mean, I think almost every Ivy league endowment participated, the biggest family offices in the world. So I feel like we're so fortunate in this business to be, making the kind of money that you can make in the asset management industry. It just feels like the right approach to life and to the world. When you realize I really crushed it in life with the kind of money we all make in this business, it's great to be able to give back. And especially in moments like the pandemic, when you had the average citizen in the United States, which is obviously one of the richest countries in the world, had five hour long car lines. To not participate in the helping in a moment like that is crazy. And I've always thought our industry was super philanthropic and they proved me right on that one for sure by the level of participation we had. Again, we'll get to the Ukraine conversation later, but we're seeing the same thing there.
3: So Ron, you just mentioned the term trust before in this sort of face-to-face that allocators would need to meet managers, right? And that's something that doesn't happen over one meeting. It really is a process getting to know people. And tell us a little bit about your experience as an asset allocator and how that worked into the platform that you ultimately created that I have to assume going forward, you basically created a hybrid model. Did you do that from the get-go knowing that it will go back to the way it's always been done? For a portion of it and then other ways it's
4: going to become a lot more efficient absolutely so my background i'm probably best known now as a conference guy because of the success of some of the events that i put together during my career but i initially was leading a seeding business that was seeding generally niche smaller strategies private equity real estate hedge funds and so i was primarily on the allocator side of that equation and number of meetings that you have to have in order to get comfortable before you're asking your organization to write a multi-million dollar check. And then of course asking others to come in and participate and write multi-million dollar checks. You have to obviously do all your homework. You have to check a lot of boxes. And again, in the private fund world, generally speaking, you have poor liquidity terms. Once you write this check, you're in this thing for a long time. If it's a venture or private equity fund, you're in it for as long as a decade. If it's a hedge fund and you're there at the beginning, you're probably still there for years. So no one is going to engage in a partnership like that without spending a lot of time getting to know the other side. So in addition to the marketing rules that I referenced earlier, you have that dynamic as well. So everything in this business is about face-to-face meetings at some point what the pandemic taught us at least in our industry was we could knock out the first one or two meetings for sure without that face to face piece because the number of funds that get allocated to by a large allocator it's very small percentage relative to how many they're actually meeting in a year just to give you a rough idea i'd say over the years hearing from allocators who attended our events they'd meet 400 funds in a year, 300, 400 kind of numbers, and they'd invest in three. It's a really small percentage that actually make it all the way through the process and get an allocation. But when you think about how inefficient that is, what you can do to increase the efficiency is take those first one or two meetings and move them to virtual. Rather than having to get on a plane, drive in a car, take trains, all this stuff, you just eliminate all of that because now Video is so ubiquitous. We've got video on everyone's desktop. We're all comfortable with it now. I don't know about you guys. Three years ago, I would not have said to anyone, hey, let's do a video conference. That would have been like awkward. (laughs) Why does Ron need to see me? But now it's so commonplace. It's really a huge benefit to this industry. So what I've seen more recently is obviously in the pandemic, it was all video. Then things started to open up in the second half of last year. We threw largest cap intro of 2022 in January of this year down in Miami, had 2,300 people there who conducted about 8,000 meetings total. The pent up demand for that in-person interaction was enormous. But I can tell you, I'm already starting to hear the pendulum swing back from people who have now gotten back to the regular grind, if you will. They're back into, I'm on a plane every day or every week. I'm not seeing my family as much. And I think we all learned we could be pretty effective through this video medium. We don't really have to go back to the old way of doing things. So while I think there was a lot of pent up demand, I think where this is really going to settle in is we're going to use video a lot because we know it works and it's super efficient and our platform is right there at the center of that. But we also built it so it could support in-person events. And actually a good example of this is next week in the Bahamas, there's going to be a salt crypto event in the Bahamas, and they're using our tech platform as the primary means of connecting all the participants in that event. So I think in the alternatives world, if you're not in a hybrid model, it just doesn't make any sense. As a tech company, I think it is highly unlikely that this Audience will ever embrace a pure tech solution and not take that next step to in person meetings.
0: Ron, you mentioned a conference in January and it was extraordinarily successful. I think you're being humble, you're sort of understating how successful it was, but I got to believe there was some apprehension going in just in terms of what was going on in the world. Can you speak to that? And what did you learn? walking away from that conference as successful as it was i know you learned a lot of different things that you're going to implement going forward
4: i appreciate the kind words guy it was really a great event we had about 120 speakers in that event we ran three stages simultaneously and we love the content because the content it feeds your brain you get to hear all these new ideas and what other thought leaders in the industry are thinking really really useful but The reason that event is as successful as it is is because people really want to do the one-on-one meetings that come after the content. So we did one day of content, had a a ton of successful panels, and then two days of one-on-one meetings, and that's where those 8,000 meetings took place. I would say there were two big takeaways. Number one, long-short equity for all of the knocks you hear about long-short equity was still the biggest category in terms of meeting count. I want to say about 30, 35% of the meetings that happened were with funds that are running long, short equity strategies. So every year I hear about how long, short equity is a dinosaur and it's on its way out. And then every year it's always the biggest meeting count. But the second thing, which really shocked me and led us to what our next event is going to be, was digital asset strategies. We only had 17 firms of 535 that were in this event. 17 firms were running digital asset strategies And collectively, those firms got 750 meetings. That really surprised us. I can tell you, I was running surveys when I did this event in the past, going back four or five years. And four or five years ago, when we asked allocators, what do you think of crypto? And one of the answers was, it's a total fraud. Like 60% of the answers were, it's a total fraud. (laughs) So from four or five years ago, being considered a fraud to now almost 10% of the meetings that took place were with digital asset funds. It's a massive swing. And our audience, we don't have consumers at our event. These are not small-time investors. They're not even high-net-worth investors. These are big institutional investors running collectively trillions of dollars. So this is the audience that everyone has been talking about in crypto. Will we get the compliance rules in place and the acceptance of the asset class to really see institutional inflows. And while I don't think that's happened yet, I can tell you that based on the activity in that event, that category of investor, they are all over this space. They are using these meetings to educate themselves, to get familiar with the funds that are running the bulk of the assets, at least bulk of what I'll call institutional assets. So it does feel to me like it is on the cusp of a big move. Let's talk about that, Ryan. I started in the hedge fund business right this february
3: first nineteen ninety seven at s a c capital up in Connecticut, and I remember being at the five year anniversary dinner and Steve Cohen came up to some mic and he said, we just passed 650 million in assets under management. And that was a huge number for a hedge fund for a long, short equity hedge fund. I don't know if he ever had designs on becoming this multi-billion dollar strat fund, the hottest thing on the planet. But it was really funny, the pushback to those sorts of businesses back then in the late nineties. And then it wasn't really until the mid 2000s where it became a force in the alternative space. And you obviously were part of that and you're an allocator. Talk to us a little bit about some of the comparisons to that period and the growth of that asset class. And now people are saying that's dead. Crypto is no longer a fraud anymore. And you're seeing a tremendous interest in that. And to me, that's my experience. I wasn't raising capital. I was a trader at a fund like that. But I remember all the naysayers. And now here we are. It feels like we've come full circle. So I'm curious Hey, how did the focus for you guys, in particular at iConnections, how has it become such a focus doing digital assets? And give us a little bit on the comparison to your experience from when hedge funds became a really hot alternative.
4: In business, we are equipped with so much more information. I feel like the long-term business cycle, as we move from period to period, it gets shorter and tighter each turn. And... These periods lasted so long, they were like multiple lifetimes before you got into the next period. And now they last a decade or two. So in our careers, we have the experience of, oh, wait, I went through the PC boom. Oh, I also went through the dot-com boom. Now we're into this internet web 3.0 stuff. We have those examples that we actually live through. So I think we're all better equipped to not be as short-sighted as maybe we would have been had we not had that direct experience ourselves. So for us, when we saw this evidence, we've obviously been seeing the buildup of digital assets here for several years. But when we saw that activity in that January event, we immediately responded to that and said, we need to do something in digital assets because this is for real. And what's the market cap of Bitcoin? I think it's around a trillion dollars. So clearly it's accumulated a lot of assets there, but the potential is much higher if the institutional market moves into it. And we just said, it's clearly happening. Let's adapt our business to be able to do that. And for us in what we do, that's not really a big move. But what I think is more interesting is the hedge fund industry, which unlike the long only industry, I think it's a lot harder for the long only industry to move and adapt because of the regulations that they're faced with. But the hedge fund industry being much less regulated, it can be more nimble and adapt. And we're seeing that right now. Our digital assets event that's coming up in June, we expect we're only going to have about 40 or 50 funds in that event because there's really only about that many funds that I would say are at institutional grade. There's a lot more than that number of funds in existence, but you need to be at a certain AUM level before a big investor can even really consider you for their portfolio because if you're too small, they can't give you enough capital or get comfortable with it. And then if they make too small investment, you don't move the needle for their portfolio. So in general, that institutional market, they need to write tens and 25s and 50s, you know, millions for it to make sense for them. What we're seeing happen is those big established hedge funds are starting to build out crypto teams. They recognize this is for real. You've had a lot of people who were naysayers who now have completely changed their tune and have accepted this is a legitimate asset class. And now they're aggressively building out teams. I'm hearing about people leaving all the different aspects of the classic hedge fund industry, whether it's on the investment side or on the service provider side, and they're moving into new jobs that are purely in the digital assets category. So I expect at our event, we'll probably have 20 or so funds that are what I would call new in the last five years, digital asset firms, and then another 20 or 30 that are established hedge funds that are building out a digital asset side to their business.
0: Ron, this conference sounds amazing. And I know Dan and I are both excited to be there. But We've all been to a lot of conferences. Some of them are just fun meeting up with old friends. What you're talking about sounds like it's going to be far more transactional
4: and goal-oriented, in addition to being fun. Can you speak to that? Absolutely, Guy. When we saw the huge interest in digital assets at our big event in January, and we decided to create this event What was important to us was that we differentiate ourselves in one very important way. When you look at most digital asset events, they almost all originated in the consumer world. And when you go to these events, you know, Bitcoin Miami and the NFT events and all that stuff, they're great events, but they're 10,000, 20,000 people. What we wanted to do was to create an event specifically for institutional investors, which is really where our strength is. You know, when you look at our event in Miami, we had six, seven hundred institutional investors at that event. And we want to bring digital assets to that audience. So unlike the enormous conferences that you see around the country, this will cater specifically to that institutional audience. We've already got around 140, 150 registered, and we expect we'll hit over 200 by the time the event happens So the transactional nature of it is, sure, we'll have world-class content on day one, but day two will be nothing but one-on-one meetings between fund managers and those institutional allocators who are looking to deploy capital into this space.
0: So it sounds like a situation where people's time, more so now than ever, is clearly worth something. So in addition to having a great time listening to great speakers they're going to get work done as well. They're going to get deals
4: done as well. And that's really the beauty of what you've put together at iConnections. That's exactly right. The capital introduction aspect of our events is really what separates us from all the other conferences out there. We are really the best in the world at the capital introduction piece, which is setting up everything in advance of the event to make it possible for our attendees to walk in that room and just crank through meetings. Our event in January, we had 8,000 meetings take place. And this event, it's a smaller event because it's really focused on this one asset class. But we expect managers to come in and get somewhere between 10 and 15 meetings on that second day, which think about that in one day. That's a lot of meetings to crank through. We're thrilled, both Dan and I, about the relationship we have with
0: iConnections, obviously with you specifically and the entire team. We have some real great visions of what we want it to look like. We're going to interview some of your funds, some of your allocators over the next few months. I think we're looking to do a couple months, Dan, if I'm not mistaken. But Ron, what is your vision? What gets you excited about this business relationship we've just entered into?
4: Someone said to me recently, if you're a new business and you don't think of yourself as a media company, you're doing something wrong. And Coming from a segment of our economy in the private fund world, marketing is all face-to-face. It's all super, super old school. No one thought of themselves as a media company in the private fund world, and I would include myself in that group. I think what is really exciting about our partnership is that you guys are media guys. You get that there are so many different avenues now to spread the word about whatever it is you're doing, about what your specialty is. Being partners with Risk Reversal puts iConnections in a position to be able to capitalize on your expertise and your reach. Obviously, both of you have huge followings on Twitter that we don't have. I barely even have a Twitter account. I do it mostly so I can follow you guys so I see what crazy stuff you've got to say. I think that's an area that we need to get much, much better in. iConnections is a software company, so we have the freedom to market our product unlike our fund clients do. So we can hopefully use that to bring the right allocator audience into our community that then benefits our fund clients.
3: All right, Guy, you're going to have to do a little tutorial. You're going to have to teach Ron all this stuff about tweeting, about subtweeting, about tagging, about all that. If we're going to do this, we got to bring Ron into the metaverse for all intents and purposes. Now, Ron... We're really excited about it too, because you've been talking about this for a while. And I think you have a sense for our vision and Guy and I and how we're building it out. We have a great group of contributors, of content contributors, and we're kind of learning a lot of stuff as we go along. But we buy into 100% what you just said, is that any sort of business has to have a strategy about how they're going to represent their brand to the outside world, how they're going to engage with them, how they're going to create community, that sort of thing. So that's really important to us. And you guys have a lot of offerings that we just don't have. And so for for us, content's really important. Being authentic is really important. And I think what you guys are presenting to both sides, the allocator and the fun side, I think we're not a lot of fun stuff to do. So first things first, I think it's May 30th and June 1st, your Digital Assets Forum in South Beach. Guy and I are going to be there. We're going to do a live pod from there. Hopefully, you will participate with us on stage. I don't know if you're more of a behind the curtain sort of guy. We're going to be down there participating in that, which is really exciting. Also, Guy just alluded, we call our podcast on the tape. We're going to be doing a couple bonus episodes a month that we're going to call – off the tape. And we're going to be using people from your vast network, some really skilled allocators and market minds. And that's going to be something really interesting to us because we think about a lot of what we do on a weekly basis is a bit ephemeral. We're kind of talking heads. We've been in the markets a long time, but sometimes doing deep dives with people who are in the trenches and they're thinking about time horizons that are a little different to ours is really illuminating. So we're really excited about that. So are we going to have you on stage? Are we going to have you on Twitter?
4: You will. Just go easy on me. This live broadcast stuff is stressful, but no, we'll definitely do that. I'd love to join you guys on stage. I go on stage at least once each event to do a fireside chat with someone, but I expect to be learning a lot from you guys about how to actually do this. What we have found over the last
0: now 15 or so months we've been doing this, we're constantly learning in terms of how we present our content and the different audiences and the different times different lengths. As Dan said, sometimes we just sort of synthesize things. So it's been a lot of fun learning on the fly. And the feedback we get from our audience is fantastic. It really helps us grow. And I think hopefully we can utilize that to help iConnections grow
4: as well. Absolutely. I have to say, I'm very excited to be able to bring you guys into the iConnections world. We're sitting here with around 600 fund managers. We've touched thousands of allocators over the last two years. And being able to introduce you to the real leaders in our community is really exciting. So I'm really looking forward to that. I think you're going to meet a lot of people that you'll find interesting that you'll want to have on, on the tape and off the tape. So I think there's really a lot of collaboration we're going to be able to do together. All right.
3: So you alluded for the charity effort when you started the company iConnections a couple years ago, and you raised nearly $2 million for food insecure people. And so what was it, Ron? You just set up funds for Ukraine. It looks like you've raised over $100,000 in a very short period of time. And I think that any of our listeners who want to donate to that, Guy and I and Risk Media will also be donating to that. It's just an amazing effort on your part. You can go to iConnections.io and you'll see it. It is literally the first thing when you go to your website. And again, it seems like this is something that you're leading with. Talk to us a little bit about how that came
4: about and how you're looking to deploy those funds. So we decided after the success of that first event, Funds for Food, that we would do an annual fundraising event. And we would identify an area that we wanted to support. So the first one was food insecurity. Last year, we did Funds for Mines given all of the struggles people had through the pandemic with mental health issues. So we raised, I believe it was around 450000 last year, and distributed that to firms or charities that were helping people with mental health issues. And this year, we were actually planning to do funds for kids, which we were very excited about, but then this war broke out. And my perspective is this is clearly... A genocide. We didn't know it when it started, but we knew that it was incredibly lopsided. You had a world power against this tiny little country. I can't believe how well they've done in defending themselves. But at the start, we just were so upset that this was happening. We felt like the right thing to do was to shift and focus on Ukraine. So all the money we've raised so far has gone to a charity called Concern which specializes in crisis spots around the world, they deploy, think of it as a SWAT team to go in and help people who are in the crisis in whatever way makes sense. In this case, they set up right on the border of Poland and Ukraine, and they focused on just getting as many refugees out of the country as possible and helping them find their way to a home somewhere in Europe. So the way the event is structured, by the way, is now we have payroll to make, so we can't give 100% of new signups to the charity event. But what we do instead is we say to the allocators, come in, pledge meetings. Every completed meeting, we'll write a check for $100 in connection with that meeting that's been completed. We've completed around five or 600 meetings so far. We expect we'll do another probably 500, 600 before the event's over. So we expect we'll write a check of somewhere between 100 and 125,000 when it's all done. And then we have event partners who put up matching dollars for that. And we've raised about 100,000 in matching dollars so far. So I love that we're talking about this because I'd love for your audience to come to the website and donate to increase the size of that matching pool every dollar that we get goes towards that matching pool. So if we could get enough dollars raised there, we could take that $100 per meeting and turn it into 300 $400 per meeting, which obviously would be great.
0: I think that's amazing. And Dan and I are honored that we're able to help in the cause as well. We will be doing it through risk reversal for sure. So thank you for doing that, Ron. It's important. I know that sounds glib, but when you really think about it, what you mentioned earlier about how fortunate we are, I agree with that, And people that have earned a lot, it's incumbent upon them to sort of give back. So I think what you're doing is great. But before we get out of here, it was 15 years ago. I'm going to mention four names. Hopefully this makes sense to you. William Macy, Tim Allen, John Travolta, and Martin Lawrence. Can you speak to what those four dudes were doing and why it means something to you today?
4: Oh, my God. What those four dudes were doing? Where are we going with that one?
0: Well, they were in a movie called Wild Hogs, Ron Biscardi. And now as spring has sprung, before you came on with us today, apparently you went out on your Wild Hog and took a ride around the Philadelphia area.
4: I did. Guy, we've had the worst spring in recent history. It's been freezing. So it got into the mid-50s today. I said, you know what? I'm taking a couple hours. I'm going out for a motorcycle ride. So I cut out for a few hours and went out on the bike. Just to be fair, though, it's not a hog. I'm not riding one of those giant Harleys. It's just a Honda, but it is fun nonetheless. It'll get the job done.
0: Ron, Dan and I are thrilled. We really are looking forward to working with you, your team, everybody at iConnections. I know it's going to be a great relationship. I know you feel the same way, and I want to thank you for joining us
4: on the tape. It was great to be with you guys. Thank you so much. I'm super psyched for this partnership.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.